Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the genealogies of Scripture, and this time Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James P. John are going to be discussing the genealogies found in 1 Chronicles chapters 7-9, through 9, which include Benjamin and others. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to remind you about our YouTube channel where we release weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We've just finished a series on liturgy and our labors, and we are currently running a short series from John Ahern on music and the church. So please check out that link in the show notes and subscribe, and we look forward to hearing from you over there on YouTube. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the genealogies found in 1 Chronicles 7-9. through 9. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alastair Roberts and James Bijan. Uh, Brian Motes is in the background and helping with the recording, and he'll be the one that edits out all our mistakes, fortunately, and uh, compiles a threatening set of outtakes that he's going to use to use to leverage um, and blackmail us uh, in uh, to uh, achieve his personal goals in one way or another. Jeff Myers has taken a couple weeks off. He'll rejoin us in our series of studies in the genealogies uh, in uh, in another week when we get to the New Testament uh, and start looking at the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. Uh, we are in the middle of a study of the genealogies of the Bible. Uh, we've starting in the book of Genesis. Obviously, we looked at a number of the chapters that deal with genealogies there in Exodus, and for the last several episodes, we've been in First Chronicles. The first nine chapters of First Chronicles are genealogical tables with interspersed short narratives and other sorts of material that that are added. But it's the the overall thrust of the first nine chapters of Chronicles is genealogical. Uh, and we've looked at the first six chapters, and we're going to try to cover the last section of the geneal- genealogy, chapters seven through nine here uh, at the end of the, in this one episode, this will, this will close us out for the Old Testament genealogies before we move into the Gospels. Let me kick things off with a, with a couple of comments about what the, the contents of this in general. The last several chapters of the genealogy cover a number of tribes, uh, we have Issachar at the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 14, talks about Manasseh. There's Ephraim in chapter 7, verse 20. Uh, so the number of the other tribes, we've had a, a sustained focus on Judah early on in the genealogies. We had a sustained focus on Levi at the center of the genealogies. And now we have this the kind of cleanup section where you have a, a number of different tribes. But I think within that, the A focus of attention within the last few chapters of the genealogy is the tribe of Benjamin. I say that partly just because of the the amount of space that's devoted to Benjamin, not all in the same location, uh, interestingly. Chapter 7, verses 6 through 12 is a, an initial overview of the, uh, of the uh, genealogy of Benjamin. And then we return again to the genealogy of Benjamin in chapter 8, and uh, we get a, a second genealogy. And then in chapter... 9, beginning in verse 35, uh, we have a genealogy that leads up to Kish and then to Saul. Uh, So we have another snippet of a genealogy of Benjamin, and that's setting us up uh, toward the end of chapter 9. It's setting us up for what's going to happen in chapter 10, which is the first actual 
a narrated episode in uh, First Chronicles, and it's the the uh, battle of Mount Gilboa between Israel and the Philistines. It's the battle at which Saul dies. So we get Saul's genealogy just before we have Saul introduced as a character in in that narrative. Uh, but we have the we have the tribe of Benjamin that's kind of scattered around within these last chapters. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I have suggested in the in past episodes that the genealogies of Israel begin and end on this note of royal royal office, the tribes the tribe of Judah at the beginning, and then uh, these various renditions, as it were, of the tribe of Benjamin that's running through the through the end the end chapters of the genealogy. If I could add one one other detail to that that um, I think reinforces reinforces some of that um, parallel that I suggested. There there are indications in detail that there are similarities between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. We not only have the general similarity that they're both tribes that produce kings, Benjamin produced a king, uh, the tribe of Judah produced many kings, uh, but we also have little snippets that uh, suggest a linkage between the two tribes. And I, I'm thinking particularly of uh, chapter eight, which is uh, the second of the three genealogical sections on Benjamin here. And we have Sha'arayim is mentioned, becomes the father of his children in the country of Moab. So there's a Benjamite connection with Moab. And it says that after he sent away Hushim, Hushim and Ba'arah, his wives. So he uh, takes wives, apparently Moabite wives, which links us up with the, the story of Ruth, in obviously in the book of Ruth. And that is also part of the genealogy of David. So we have a, a Sha'arayim who's a Benjamite who has children with uh, presumably a a Moabite wife. Uh, and so we have mixed race children. That was one of the things that I noted when we looked at the genealogy of Judah, that you had uh, a number of places where the genealogy of Judah runs aground and then it's revived. And several times it's revived by the introduction of Gentiles into the, into the line. Tamar is the most famous example of that, but there are other examples in the genealogy of Judah where Gentiles are brought in and that gives new birth to the line of Judah. You have something similar going on here in chapter eight, uh, here with the tribe of Benjamin instead of with Judah. And then skipping down a, a few verses down to 813, uh, just it's uh, listing off sons and uh, sons' descendants from Benjamin and uh, their their locations. And I'll just break into the middle of a sentence. It, it mentions Bariah and Shema, who were the heads of the father's households of the inhabitants of Ajalon, who put to flight the inhabitants of Gath. It's a little snippet of information about the battles of these Benjamites. And it's it's interesting that they are linked up with, that they're fighting against Philistines. Gath is one of the five Philistine cities. Gath is the city from which Goliath comes. Goliath is a Gittite, uh, a resident of Gath. And now we have Benjamites fighting, fighting Gittites from the Philistine city of Gath. So again, they're doing, they're engaged in these wars that are typically associated with the wars of Judah and particularly the wars of David. And then we also have a number of places in the, these chapters talking about Benjamin, where there are clans and subclans of Benjamin that end up residing in Jerusalem. That's highlighted in verse 28 of chapter 8. These are the heads of the father's households, according to their generation's chief men who lived in Jerusalem. So we have, and we have a, a whole list of these chief men who are settled in and around Jerusalem. Again, we think of Jerusalem as the, it is the capital city of David. And it's uh, within the, we think of it as a, as a Judahite city, but it's a, a Benjamite city in large part. Geographically, it's, it's in the, it's in the uh, uh, region of Benjamin and Judah. 
And the residents include not only uh, descendants of Judah, but descendants of Benjamin. So the capital city is partly a Benjamite city. So in, in all those details, we have specific parallels between the two royal tribes that are at the beginning and end of the genealogy. And in some way, Benjamin is uh, anticipating or paralleling or mirroring the history of the tribe of Judah. I think you see something similar in Genesis 49 with the blessings upon the tribes, where Joseph and Benjamin as a pairing parallel with Judah, and a number of the details of those particular blessings match up. They're the two um, prominent figures, and Benjamin is paired with Joseph in a way that um, stands over against Judah. One detail I'd be interested to hear, if either of you have any thoughts on, are the tribes that are omitted within this list. Um, from what I can see, there's no mention of Zebulun, and there's no mention of Dan. Um, Zebulun is often paired with Issachar. We see that in Deuteronomy 32 and elsewhere, where one of the those two tribes seems to take take prominence at different points and the other tribe is almost subsumed under it um, in lists of blessings or something like that and then Dan the non-mention of Dan is also interesting Dan isn't mentioned in is it Revelation 7 um, where the list mm -hmm. of the tribes are given there do either of you have any thoughts on those omissions is there a reason for it well the, I think the example of Dan um, is a little bit uh, easier to to sort out because Dan has a, you know, appears in some fairly prominent episodes in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm thinking particularly the the uh, story that we have in uh, toward the end of Judges, uh, where we have an, the Levite with his ephod uh, ends up traveling with the tribe of Dan and settling in the in the northern reaches of the land. Uh, there's still a Danite presence, uh, obviously, because you have from Dan to Beersheba are the are the limits of the land. But there's a strong sense in that story that Dan gets absorbed into the faith of the the Canaanites, and and they become idolaters. So the exclusion of Dan seems to be kind of a, a cutting off of a branch. Again, it's it's not a, it's not a complete elimination of Dan, but that as you say, it happens in the list in Revelation, and uh, they're excluded here. Zebulun, I don't have any theory about at all. James, maybe you have thoughts. I don't know. The only thought I had, this is going back to your previous point, Peter, about this um, character, um, Shacharaim in um, chapter 8 and verse 8, strike me as interesting that really, I mean it's hard to break up the, the listing, but it seems to me that he is hugely fruitful it's his descendants that really multiply and they just kind of glide into the chief men who settle in Jerusalem and all that's set against the backdrop of some kind of exile in verse six the the text is quite difficult there but it it feels as if basically this is a, a preservation by by means of exile um that kind of the line is carried away mm -hmm. and then becomes mm -hmm. fruitful in a foreign country and then returns to jerusalem yeah yeah and fitting with the the exilic restoration pattern that we uh, have talked about in previous episodes and that that's the overall movement of the book of chronicles yeah you have you have very much a small scale illustration of that in that in the those few verses alistair did you have a did you have a theory about zebulun yourself since you brought up the question 
Not particularly, except that there are a number of occasions where Issachar and Zebulun are mentioned as a pairing, mm. and uh, one yeah. seems to take prominence over the other, the other being sus- subsumed under them. Um, so I wonder whether something like that is going on. One detail about the, um, the descendants of Issachar that I do find interesting are the mention of Tola and Pua as two sons of Issachar. Now, in the Book of Judges, one of the judges is Tola, son of Pua, presumably different Pua and different Tola. But there seems to be this use of patronyms um, throughout these particular tribes that carry on for quite some period of time. So you'll have names that we encounter a few times um, for different characters. We've had a couple of Elkanas in um, the Levite line. And I'll be interested to hear if James particularly has any thoughts on the way that these names seems to be seem to be distributed, particular associations. Um, it seems that even down to the time of the New Testament, we're seeing certain regions having particular prominent names that we found back even back in the period of the judges that have been associated with those regions. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I I would guess that the Tola son of Pua in Judges, um, I would guess that the Pua is the same, um, but the Tola is just a tribal name that has many instances. So I would assume that the um, the details there is Tola is given with Pua as his, his uh, clan leader. Um, that's what I would guess is going on. And those two names have a semantic correspondence. Tola is, is the um, a worm from which scarlet dye is made. It, it's commonly um, just has to be rendered as, as scarlet, and pua is a, a scarlet scarlet dye as well. They're, they're two different words for scarlet dye. And um, mm. uh, there, there's a, a another guy whose name might mean worm, Dodo, if it's related to like the there's an Arabic name uh, still in modern use, Dudu, which, which which is a worm. I, I'm not sure if that's connected or or not but um that sort of thing does seem to go on quite a lot i mean you mentioned that it still being the case in the new testament um alistair were were you thinking particularly about john the baptist there or did you did you have something else in mind um i was thinking maybe of characters like gyrus um have gyre that tickle area yep Um, so, I mean, I guess in John the Baptist's case, it's it's um, stated explicitly, isn't it? His name is a surprise because it's not a, yep. good, not got any clear precedent in his ancestry, and so that kind of thing does does seem to go on a lot. That there were particular names associated with particular particular lineages. Yeah, I wanted to jump back to uh, Alistair. I think I think you brought up the mention of Elkanah. I was gonna I was gonna make this point in the last episode. The name Elkanah appears, I think, five times in chapter six in a cluster, and it's not all the same guy. There are different generations, and but that name that name pops out at you. And the one of the intriguing things about that is that there obviously that well maybe not obviously, but you might remember that the best known Elkanah is the father of Samuel. Uh, and that is uh, one of the Elkanas, at least, who's named in chapter six. This is new information. Uh, we might have surmised, perhaps, that Elkanah's family has some kind of priestly connection from the stories in Samuel, 
but we're not told about that genealogy. He's in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, of course, he can be in the, living in the hill country of Ephraim and still be a descendant of Levi. As we talked about last time, then Levites are scattered all over the land. So that could be a geographic identifier without being a tribal identifier. But here in First Chronicles 6, we have the information that Samuel is uh, a, uh, a descendant of Levi, which I think is a, a good nugget of information to have in mind as we as we read through the books of Samuel and think about what Samuel's up to. Also that David appoints his grandson as the lead singer of the Kohathites. Hmm. I, I wanted to move ahead and look a little bit at uh, the final chapter. We can we can look at other parts of it too, but I think the, the final chapter of the genealogy has some important uh, important things to teach us. Chapter nine begins with, so all Israel was enrolled by genealogies. Uh, that uh, phrase, all Israel's, it's a phrase that's going to be used throughout the book of Chronicles, talking about the assembly of all Israel at the time of the dedication of the temple, for example. Uh, and I think that that's part of the post-exilic context of Chronicles, that it's looking forward to the regathering of all Israel uh, after the exile. Uh, we have a gathering, as I, as we said at the beginning of our studies in the uh, in these genealogies, we have a an on the page gathering of Israel uh, in these early chapters. But so we have that phrase used. But then we have this: uh, they were written in the book of the kings of Israel, and Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their unfaithfulness. This is again a reference to the uh, to the sacrilege that Israel commits, the abuse of the land. That's the specific sacrilege we find out at the end of Second Chronicles. Uh, and it's one of several references to the exile that we find in the genealogies. The thing that's, I think, remarkable about that is that that's not the end of the story, obviously. Judah is carried away into exile, and then the very next verse is, now the first, I think uh, the Hebrew is Rashid or some some variation on Rashid, uh, beginning first fruits. Uh, the first who lived in their possessions in the cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. That uh, I take it is a description of those who are going to return after the exile. So verse one says that Israel was cast away. The very next verse talks about those who returned. Uh, and so we have a kind of rebirth. Uh, that is, there's a hint here, I think, in in the use of the term first or beginning. There's a hint that what we have is the new creation of Israel, which uh, perhaps is uh, further emphasized uh, when we get toward the end of the chapter and uh, there's a reference to the work of the Kohathites who are working in the, in the sanctuary to prepare the showbread every Sabbath. That's in verse 32. So we have a, a chapter that begins with the word beginning, and then toward the end of the chapter, we have a reference to the Sabbath. We seem to have a, 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 a new creation motif going on here. And again, it's, it's in keeping with the theme of the genealogies at several points that the Lord is a God of life. Uh, he overcomes death. He overcomes the, the failure of the flesh. When, uh, when Israel's flesh can't go on, the Lord gives them new life. And even when they go into the grave of exile, the Lord is able to bring them back. Underlining that point, Peter, in verses 4 through to 6, we have sort of three clans reborn. There is uh, the sons of Perez, uh, the son of Judah, and of the Shilonites, I, I assume that is um, a patronymic of, of Shela. Um, the sort of Owen suffix often does that with names like Gilonite and, and so forth from Gilo. Um, and then in verse 6, the sons of Zerah, 
So it seems that those three um, mm. branches of Judah are kind of restored here. If memory serves, uh, the uh, lines of Sarah were the ones that were being were being stalled yeah. early in the genealogy in, chap- in chapter two. And so the fact that they're still, that Sarah reappears. Um, verse six brings up a question that I, um, I don't have an answer to, but maybe you have some insight on. After chapter six, I don't think it happens prior to that, but after chapter six, we start getting numbers associated with uh, different tribes and groupings within the tribes. So uh, immediately in chapter seven, verse two, have the sons of Tola were Uzi and so on. And then their number in the days of David was 22,600. Then uh, generations of the father's houses were 36,000 troops. The relatives of Issachar in all were 87,000. I don't believe that we've had numbers uh, given to tribes earlier. Uh, We don't have numbers given to the tribe of Judah. So we have a kind of of book of numbers and maybe a a mustering or a, a military census that's being hinted at here with these later tribes that are introduced. But I wondered if any of you had, either of you had any thoughts on the reason for bringing those numbers back into play or bringing those numbers into play at this point. It certainly seems to have a, a, a reference back to the story of numbers. It's a people on the move preparing to re-enter the land. And in that respect, I think um, the connection is quite natural. Yeah, and that would especially be the case in chapter nine, where you have these different these different groups, uh, and they're they're the ones who are first settling in the cities after the exile. But in in chapter seven already, you have these numbers given. They're giving ancestry for these ancestry for the tribes as they exist in David's day. But then the numbers in David's day are counted up. That's the new thing that's introduced here. When would this numbering have taken place? This wouldn't be the census that David took. Or would it be that? So some of it may be, but then there are other censuses mentioned. Um, I can't sort of see them off offhand, but um, oh, so um, for instance, chapter five, verse seventeen. Although, albeit that's not numbered, but those are genealogies recorded in the days of Jotham and in the days of Jeroboam. So um, I guess it could come from a, a range of different information sources. Mm. The numbering in chapter 9 kind of seems very natural to me just because in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, after the return, right. each line is, is numbered there or each clan leader has a certain number associated with it. Um, but, yeah, why they start, start appearing in chapter 7 is, is strikes me as an interesting um, observation. Yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to correct myself because there, there is a numbering – in 518 of the Reubenites and the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, it's not as explicit about when the when that number was, when it applied, uh, but it does count up the numbers of those who are going to war. And that seems to be the case in chapter 7, too, that you have a, a mustering. It fits somewhat with the way that uh, Chronicle, First Chronicles depicts the, minist- the, the life of David. He's less a conqueror than he is a, an organizer and administrator. He's uh, organizing the Levites and the priests. Uh, he's organizing the the uh, the royal lands and the workmen in the royal lands. So it would be in keeping with that that he would have that he would be organizing the tribes for war in some way. As Alistair hinted, that the great sin of David in the in the Book of Chronicles is the census in chapter twenty one of First Chronicles. 
there's no reference to the sin with Bathsheba, but there is the uh, the reference to that that David seizing the seizing the troops, the host of the Lord as his own. And perhaps there's some hint of that already in the genealogies that there's this uh, the illegitimate census mustering is already somehow already uh, foreshadowed or even forgiven. I mean, maybe the um, emphasis yeah. for these numbers isn't so much that those tribes are numbered, but that Judah Judah isn't. And so maybe that's the significant thing that he is the organizer rather than the sort of uh, rather than one of the the actual fighters. Mm. Yeah. I also wanted to tur- turn to the uh, the last half or so of chapter nine. I've emphasized the role of uh, the genealogy of Benjamin in that chapter and in chapter eight. But we also return to the Levites, beginning in verse ten of chapter nine. Uh, there are priests listed. Verse fourteen has Levites. Verse seventeen has specific subcategory of Levites who are the gatekeepers, and a good deal of information about the gatekeepers and particularly giving honor to the greatest of the gatekeeper, gatekeepers, who is Phineas, who uh, shows zeal in guarding the holiness of the Lord's camp. Verse 28 talks about those who are in charge of the temple treasury with its utensils and so on. Uh, and then the singers come back in verse 33, as briefly mentioned. So those are all listed out in connection with the return from exile. So that's the reason why it's repeated here. But it's interesting that you, you again have the here in this concluding section, you have the Levites brought back into play. The primary division here seems to be priests, Levites, and gatekeepers, doesn't it? As opposed to, I mean, there are uh, Kohathites and so forth mentioned, but it, the threefold division seems to be priests, Levites, gatekeepers, rather than the previous um, Gershonites and, and so on. Right. So instead of being uh, in, instead of being classified by ancestor, they're being classified by function. By task, yeah, yeah. Part of this is due to the, the the Levites are going to go through a significant revision of their responsibilities because they're not going to be transporting the furnishings of the temple as they had been in the past. That's that's made explicit uh, when Solomon builds the temple and tells the Levites they they're not going to be carrying things around anymore. You may have a reorganization just in the in the way that Levites are classified because uh, they're not they're not attached to their traditional traditional work anymore. After the return from the exile in this um, chapter nine, we only really see um, the kingly tribes of Benjamin and Judah and the Levites. There's a brief passing mention to the um, the tribe people of the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem. But it seems as if, as regards the tribal life of Israel. All the other tribes have been eclipsed by the royal tribes and the priestly tribe. Um, and later on in scripture, we do encounter some people from different tribes. We see, for instance, Anna of the tribe of, Asa, uh, of Asher, but there's very little reference to the tribes beyond the royal and the priestly tribes. Hmm. This may be an, an overly creative view of it, but if you took the... Um, uh, the description of the Levites situated in their cities in in David's day in one Chronicle six as a sort of central uh, stem or, or branch of the Levites, you could almost see a, a menorah type structure. On one side of it, you have the threefold division into Gershomites, Kohathites, and Merarites, and then on the other side, sort of post the exile, you have this threefold priests, Levites, gatekeepers, but 
that, that, that may be pushing it a little bit. Oh no, that's the kind of thing we want. Push it, keep pushing. <laughs> I think that's good, and we can we can end with the menorah. That would be a good ending. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.